Welcome to Turmeric and Tequila with your host, Kristen Olson. Questioning a better way, one gracefully disruptive conversation at a time. Welcome to Turmeric and Tequila. Uh, Today's a great day. I have an OG homie, friend, sister uh, in fitness, I think in life, the Rhonda Kelly in the house. Um, As you know, I don't do a lot of the intros. I'm going to let her talk about it. Rhonda covers so many boxes, her experience, um, her vision on what's coming out, and then her heart in the mix of all those things is a very special thing. So I'm very excited to sit here and have her share a little bit about her story. Otherwise, the cast, I think, would be 10 years. Um, but little pieces of it and uh, some really cool initiatives that are coming out that, um, again, stem from her eclectic experience, but also her heart space. So, Rhonda, welcome. Thanks, <laughs> it's so hard to call you that. I know. <laughs> CrossFit friends of CrossFit name is usually KO, so we'll go with that. Fantastic. Or Madonna. Oh, you know. Uh, first things first, we got to cheers. Oh, we cheers. cheers already when we made drinks, obviously, but cheers. we'll do first. Cheers. I am so excited to be here. I mm. love watching what you're doing and what you're contributing to this space. Thank you. Know. Thank you. It's an evolving process, <laughs> but um, loving it. And I honestly am so blessed to have people in my world like you just naturally. I mean, we cross paths because of fitness. Um, and then have stayed friends because we're obviously super fun and awesome <laughs> and like wine and tequila. Um, but I mean, you know, the people we get to train with are such remarkable humans. Absolutely. Um, the closest fitness. friendships I have now came out of Front Range CrossFit. Yes. And it's just amazing, the variety of people. But the um, the shared spaces where you overlap and you don't yeah. anticipate that just in, in the way you view the world and the way yeah. you move through the world, um, the way you connect. It's well yeah, said. It's yeah. Good. It's kind of crazy because you don't know. I mean, you go into like, again, lift weights and then 10 years later, <laughs> you do get your best friend. So it's a nice little filter for life. Exactly. Okay. So tell us about you. I know there's a lot, but give us, give us all the deets. Let's see. Well, you know, I'm kind of a rando. Yes. Which is, uh, that's why we're friends. <laughs> in good space. Bonding. Yeah. Um, so went to college, majored in physics. I wanted to be an astronaut. Didn't happen. Um, but... <laughs> I don't even know if I knew that actually. Really? Okay. okay. I, no, I don't think so. But yeah. that... Not surprised at all. <laughs> um, got to my senior year, decided I did not want to spend the rest of my life locked in a lab with radiation by myself, which is how I spent college. Okay. Um, happened to take a intro to oceanography course from a visiting professor. Was there for one semester. I loved it. Thought it was amazing. He said, hey, you know, there's the physics of the ocean, physical oceanography. You should study that. I thought, I should. Um, that sounds like fun, which is the the thought that has immediately preceded almost all my life decisions. For <laughs> I, mean, I, think that's, I think that's good. That's not like I need a paycheck, which no hate on that. We got to get paid. But that's a that's good space, I think. Yeah, fun, enjoyment. Yeah. So I got into grad school at University of Washington. I went out there. I had a full ride from the Department of Defense. And um, interestingly enough, the military underwrites most of the oceanographic research in the U.S. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, you can track a whale through the ocean. You can also track a sub and oh, other things. Oh, okay. Yeah, interesting. Okay. I mean, that makes complete sense, but yeah. yeah. But um, I knew Seattle, it rained. I didn't know how gray it was. Yeah. And I'm solar powered, which is why I live here in Colorado <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> Going green from day one. I love exactly. it. Exactly. So uh, I spent... I did two, a little over two years in a three-year program. I uh, spent as much time at sea as I could working on the research ship so I could see the sun. Decided this wasn't really what I wanted to do. Completely randomly one day, 
got a call from a former professor who said, hey, I'm running a research station in Bermuda. I need a tech who can run all the equipment you run. I've heard you're thinking about dropping out. Do you want to drop out and move to Bermuda? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love when like universe opens up doors and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, Yeah. I'm out. Okay, in the move. Peace out. Here I go. So I dropped out and moved to Bermuda, got the moped, had the whole experience. Same guy a year and a half later walks into the lab and says, I have an expedition leaving Easter Island next week. My tech just broke his leg. Can you go tomorrow? Oh, my God. Yeah, I can. Okay. This guy's like the Wizard of Oz. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, so I went and spent several months down in the South Pacific working on a ship. Got to spend some time on Easter Island, which was incredible. Realized that there was this need for contract oceanographic techs. So there was a ton of research for field work but not enough research to hire full-time techs, not the overhead. So we break into a little, what's ocean tech? Like what does that job entail? Oceanography. So it's chemistry, water sampling, air sampling, um, catching the biology contortions are, you know, krill and microbiology, fish. Um, Physics is how the water masses move, how the water masses interact with the air masses. So a lot of climatology type stuff. Okay. Um, What I'd been researching in grad school was actually Arctic ice cover. And oh, how okay. it was depleting and how that was tied in with climate change. A lot of the research Bermuda was <laughs> so doing. So you can factually say it's a thing. It is. I can say that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Listen up, y'all. Okay. <laughs> People who say it's not, I just, I don't engage. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've already had my cardio for the day. <laughs> yeah. What's that statement? Uh, don't wrestle with the pig. You'll just get dirty. Yeah. Enjoy it. <laughs> exactly. Throw it a treat not, and walk away. <laughs> yeah, not that they're pigs, but um, anyway, science. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, realized, hey, there's this niche. They were looking... The researchers were looking for people like me who had the skill set, didn't mind living out of a backpack and just going ship to ship and traveling around the world. So I got back to port, called my boss in Bermuda, said, hey, I want to do this thing. He said, great, I have a job for you in the Middle East. Um, so that started a couple oh, years. Yeah, just traveling around the world on other people's dimes. When, and when was this? 2000s? Ooh. <laughs> no. <laughs> At the risk of dating myself. Let's see. That was, I moved to Bermuda in 93. Okay. Started doing the contract work in the beginning of 95. Um, so then for a couple years, I um, just traveled around the world filtering water. Okay. Which it turns out gets old. Um, but <laughs> well. but I universe coming yeah. into play again, I met some people from the Antarctic program who said, hey, we run icebreakers as research platforms in the Antarctic. You should come work with us. Love. Yeah, I should because that definitely sounds like fun. Got hired, spent the next four years working on the deck of icebreakers. Loved it. Um, penguins, seals, whales, oh, okay. scuba, everywhere. Um, loved the work. It was physically demanding. It was team-based. It was hard to predict. And life was so simple. Yeah. Uh, there was, you know, um, a galley crew, so I didn't have to cook. <laughs> they okay. They the cleaning. All I did was work my shift. And granted, we worked minimum 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. Well, but that hasn't changed you. That sounds a light load. I know. <laughs> compared to what you do, but okay. Habitual. Yeah. Um, but it was an incredible experience. It was just yeah. phenomenal. Everybody who worked as a support crew down there had to have multiple hats. And I happened to be trained in hazardous materials technician and in EMT. Okay. So frighteningly enough, an advanced practice EMT was the only medical support we had on the ship. So we had a, a, a deep culture of safety. You know, okay. You get yeah. <laughs> Seriously. This is 0% survival rate. Yeah. Look alive. Oh, okay. Yeah. Two weeks to medevac. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, okay. So it was good. I uh, enjoyed that, but I was coming up on 30 and realized, you know, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying this, but I don't feel fulfilled. Yeah. You know, I'm contributing to research that's going to be part of a paper that maybe five people will read. Well, I was, I was, and I don't want to stop your flow, but I was curious, like, who's monetizing this data? Is it like NASA? Is it government contracts? Mm -hmm. Like, who's, 
Is it Exxon and they're ignoring it? Or what's going, <laughs> what's going on here? Um, most of it was funded by the U.S. government, particularly okay. the National Science Foundation. Perfect. Okay. Yep. And, I'm ignorant in this field, but I love hearing this. Okay. Oh, yeah. And NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, funded some of it. Um, so there's, there's definitely a, a pool of mainly federally based funds for scientific research Got that it. tapped into it. Okay. Um, okay. So that was amazing, but I started to feel like, gosh, you know, I want to have more of an impact. I want something that's more fulfilling. The Antarctic program at the time was based in Denver. So I landed oh, here. Okay. I loved it. Hey, I want to stay here. I thought I was going to be a nurse or a PA. Okay. So I started doing my prereqs because physics does not carry over at all. Um, oh, interesting. No, but you know, I, I mean, I guess take, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, biology, know. chemistry. I'm so not, I'm creative, like arts, you are? language. <laughs> yeah, take a look around. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Um, but okay, I mean, that kind of makes, but it is such different things. It's like fitness, nutrition, like sounds similar, but not really. Yeah, exactly. So I was taking my prereqs and I was shadowing. ER staff, so PAs and nurse practitioners and nurses trying to figure out what I wanted to be, but I kept seeing firefighter paramedics come in. Mm. And of course, that just looked like all kinds of fun. Yeah. Um, it was team-based work. It was unpredictable. It had the camaraderie that I'd experienced, <laughs> and I just thought, this is amazing. I want to go do this. So I jumped ship again. Okay. Tested, got hired by Aurora Fire, became a firefighter paramedic for them. Still thought that I wanted to be a nurse, so I picked up my nursing license on the side. That yeah, it was a couple years into my career, and I realized, hey, you know, things have shifted. I started feeling like this is awesome, and everybody I knew, whether they were a cop or a firefighter or a medic or a dispatcher, they all talked about, I got into this work because I want to help people. Yeah. I mean, any responder you ask, that's ultimately going to be their answer. Yeah. But there's these things called frequent flyers, uh, affectionately <laughs> named. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> She's Granny, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, so it's people who are poorly resourced, who don't know what to do, and can only hit the easy button, which is 911. Oh, okay. And that's fine. We'll show up. But these people don't need the two things we could offer, which was a ride in the ambulance to the ER or a ride in the patrol car to jail. Not a lot of options out there. Lots of times people needed um, social services. They needed child welfare support. They needed chronic mental illness support. They needed addiction recovery. You know, just this whole host of things that we couldn't provide for them. So it gets to be wearing on you when you go in and you want to do good. And you come back and you realize, crap, we're here. Um, And the flip side of that, too, was a lot of the the people who utilize or heavy, what do they call them, super utilizers of the system they, it was lifestyle for them. So yeah, you do have diabetes, but you're also eating crap. Um, you're not taking care of yourself. You're smoking. Um, you're, you appear to be a hoarder. Um, there's, (laughs) I can't get in your house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's all these issues and we know that we can't fix it because this is a lifestyle thing and, and they're not willing to address it. So there were so many patients that I was running on that I knew, Hey, you know, I'm going to be here this week. I'm going to be here next week. I'm going to be here the week after that. And eventually I'm going to be doing CPR on you. And that's no fun for anybody. (laughs) It's not going to have a good ending. So it does start to wear on you. And I noticed in my coworkers and in myself, just this jadedness, this kind of negativity that was coming forward. A lot of it was because you and I talked earlier about Maslow's. We're getting so close to self-actualization. We want to contribute to the world. We want to feel fulfilled. We want to feel like we had an impact. And now we're in this job that we thought really set us up for that. And it's not happening. We're we're backsliding. Right. Uh, At the same time, simultaneously, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's the things that our culture kind of subverted into being signs of saltiness or swagger. Things like multiple divorces, maybe a drinking problem, coming in hungover, um, very bitter, sarcastic sense of humor. And 
the culture looks at those as, hey, that's this is the emblem. This is what you want to be. This is the, yeah. the pinnacle. This is how you you show that you you're salty. But really, they're signs of stress injury because in emergency response work, the single greatest exposure is arguably the intense trauma and suffering of other people. Right. Yeah, we're never prepared for that, and it's it's been a big oversight on the part of our occupations and on our agencies that we don't, not only do we not train, but the culture tells us if you have any emotional or mental impact from this, it's because you're weak and you shouldn't be here. Yet going back to the reason people get into the field to help people, compassion and empathy and a shared sense of humanity are the big character traits that draw people in. Yeah. You got to be strong. You got to be fast. You got to be smart, all these other things, but the base, the way we interact with people, the emotional impacts, those are the skill sets that we're not trained to defend ourselves against. And this is stuff that I wish they would teach just in basic like high school space. Because again, it's like working and building um, your emotional IQ, your EQ of just how to deal with other people on a very simple level. And then broadening that as you get into certain employment opportunities or lifestyles or whatever. Um, but I just, I mean, something that kind of rings to my mind. Do you think some of that impact and that jadedness comes from uh, seeing people that, you know, like how bad situations are or, or the idea that you can't help them. Like, I mean, literally, I mean, something that I've kind of, I wouldn't say feared, but I've been aware of that, you know, with two brothers in service that have come home, you know, from being deployed and seen things that they can't fix and they're not jaded, but it's like, I mean, it's just such overwhelming situations, even like a hoarder, like you can't, you can resuscitate them. You can do some of these things, but there's things that you can't do. Do you think part of it is, you're exposed to something where you're like, I'm going to fix this problem. But then you see it like this isn't an immediate fix to problems. And then you repeatedly see like, I can't, maybe you're handcuffed to like by the system or logistics or whatever. But realistically, even if you had um, the opportunity to help, it's not like a quick fix or it may be unfixable in general. Absolutely. And I think you just nailed it. When we look at hope and what hope is comprised of, there's pathway and there's agency and there's goal. And what you're describing is the loss of agency. I'm seeing the issue. I understand the issue. I know what my goal is and I can't get there. There's no path from here to there. And it's, it, it takes away people's sense of self-efficacy, which then starts to erode their sense of self-worth, their self-image. Hence drinking and all these destructive behaviors. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe, and it's commonly believed that all of these behaviors, the excessive behaviors, and it doesn't just have to be the quote unquote bad things. It's not just drinking or gambling. Exercise. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I can't tell you how many former military buddies I have that are um, hardcore, hardcore mountain bikers. Yeah. Um, And it's great. Mountain biking is awesome. (laughs) But when it's excessive and you don't do anything anything else. Anything excessive is too much. Like nutrition or counting your macros or, you know, modeling or what anything to excess is poison. Yep. And I believe, and a lot of people believe that those are numbing behaviors. Yeah. I can't deal with all of this and I can't deal with what's inside because I don't even have the context to talk about that. I don't yeah. have the language, but I can just go out and exhaust myself. I can drink myself into a state of stupor. I can Netflix, video game, web surf, whatever, yeah. until I, I distract myself from these things and I don't feel them anymore. But you know, and you and I've talked about this before, you can't selectively numb. So if you take away the lows, you're also taking away the capacity for the highs. Yeah. And And that's, I mean, fitness or behavioral choices and or medication and or alcohol or like, I mean, there's so many angles. And if we're not equipped um, as human beings and these, I think these kind of situations and these choices are happening earlier and earlier on, like as our young people, I think if you're not equipped with these uh, defense mechanisms or coping mechanisms or anything, then that's this stuff is happening even earlier. And that's why th- these conversations are so important because 
it's not just, you know, responders and, and our people that are literally subjected to it all the time. And that's their job, but our kiddos, school shootings, uh, parental abuse, and they're in the home. I mean, this kind of like really intense stuff is happening so much earlier. And if it's not in your home, it's on your social media. Absolutely. Exposure is real. Absolutely. And that's one of the things we talk about a lot with responders is not only is our society getting more stressful, but your jobs, the average call volume is up across the country and the average call acuity, the things that used to just qualify as that one heinous call you had during your career are in regular rotation now. So we're being exposed to more volume. We're being exposed to more intensity on top of the stressors that are omnipresent in society that like you highlighted. And then we're also dealing with other people's trauma on top of that. So I think that the absence of those coping skills and the absence of that EQ IQ stuff is really manifested more because the load is greater in this population. We see it a lot um, in veterans. We know that nationally veterans comprise about 6% of the workforce. In the emergency response world, they comprise more about 20% of the workforce. And it makes sense. It's a job you go into for the same reasons I chose it. It's camaraderie. It's teamwork. It's very similar skill sets to what many do in the military. Yet when we look at our uh, suicide statistics... In Colorado in particular, there was a study in 2004 to 2014 looking at the violent deaths in Colorado. When we look at the suicides across Colorado during that time, 20% were veterans, which is high. When we look at the responder suicides in Colorado during that time frame, 46% were also veterans. Are you serious? Yeah, they're disproportionately represented, and I think it's that load. So not only do they have normal person societal load, um, it's another point that I I like to touch on is the adverse childhood experiences scores, ACEs. We know that people in the helping professions tend to have higher average scores than the mainstream population. So these are people who had adverse experiences, whether it was um, emotional, mental, physical abuse in their childhood home, um, addiction in their home, broken home, a parent in jail, you know, whatever it is, just something that is categorized as an adverse experience. We know that's high in the military. We know it's high in emergency responders. Ironically, it's high in mental health professionals. It's oh. high in medical workers. And it's it, what it's believed is that oftentimes a child's response to these adverse experiences is to become the rescuer, to become yeah. the controller, to be, become the one who engages in, in keeps others safe or keeps themselves safe. So it transitions really well to these job roles. Isn't that kind of a, and I don't know, but isn't that kind of a positive response? Like just talking about human nature in itself. Like Mm -hmm. if you have a healthy, you know, attached child, like a a quote unquote normal individual, their response is to help and or heal and or make things better. Even if it's the agenda or the initial, the response is to to do something positive. Exactly. And hundred percent, you're right. This is a, a healthy outcome. This is better yeah. than lashing out with anger. This is better yeah. than drowning in drugs or alcohol, trying to numb. But what happens is the, it's a, and it's attempted coping mechanism to get into these fields yeah. because the person wants to continue to be the rescuer, wants to continue to feel a sense of control, but still hasn't dealt with that trauma. Yeah. So that trauma is low lying. Now you get this oh, additional trauma okay. in another layer. So it's almost like, um, avalanche risk. You look, okay, there's a layer of hoarfrost down here and we got a uh, melt freeze cycle. We got another melt freeze cycle. So you've got this instability down low at the base and sooner or later that's going to give and and makes you more sensitive to the things above it also. Perfect metaphor. Got it. Okay. Um, Interesting. Okay. So maybe it comes from, it sounds positive, but in general, it's like a defense mechanism to kind of turn your head to your own stuff and make the world a better place. Exactly. Oh, you nailed it. Okay. So when we talk about numbing, 
sometimes one of the forms of numbing is I'm not going to deal with my issues, but I'm going to help everybody else. I'm going to focus on all these other issues. Um, and not, that's not saying that everybody who grew up in adverse childhood experiences does that. A lot of people get help early on, they figure it out, they deal with it and they move forward and they might still be the rescuer type person or that mindset, but they've dealt with their traumas. Yeah. For the most part, no, because of the exact reasons you hit. Society doesn't teach us that. It doesn't teach us to cope. It doesn't teach us to understand. It doesn't teach us to draw those connections. Oh, I mean, I think just self-awareness in general. Like, I mean, it's funny. I've done a lot of these, well, not a lot, about 25 casts. And regardless of the topic, and they could be completely different things, it kind of always goes back to like, how are we taking care of ourselves? What's our conversation around ourselves? Like, we can't control the rest of the world. And like, this might be the conversation of this viewpoint on the world. But again, it comes back to like our own thoughts on ourselves, our inner dialogue and how that's, you know, reflective in our external decisions and and what we do um, and how critical that is for our young people to start those conversations. And I I do think it's, it's happening. That's why I'm excited. That's the positive side to me of like social media and podcasting and all these things where if there's some sort of will, there is a way you can learn more if you so choose. Absolutely. And yeah, like you say, that's the bright side of social media. We have access to so much more information now, but it's still up to us to choose what we pursue. Which is great because there's, I mean, you've seen your experience and I mean, you can see her how much background you have in each angle. I mean, that's rare. How is a 19 year old going to navigate that when they don't have, you know, 20 years of experience like you have? Like it's crazy. Yeah. And, um, and going back into the, the fire department where I was at that time, I um, I started seeing all these changes in us that we just kind of captured in a nutshell why they were there. But um, I thought, you know, I'm going to learn to give better care. So I'm going to become an ER nurse. I started working part time in the ER and in the psyche ER at Porter Adventist here in Denver. But what I found was all the same things because, duh, that's where we take our patients. Um, It was a lot of people who weren't willing to take the steps to take the responsibility for changing their own quality of life. Many times it was because they didn't understand why. They didn't understand the connections between it. There was a lot of burnout in the ER staff. Um, Suicide rates we know among ER doctors are very, very high. Oh, okay. It's very similar to the emergency response world. You nailed it with uh, you're seeing the problem, you're seeing the goal, but that agency, that pathway between it just isn't there. Yeah. Which is an existential crisis, basically. Yeah. Like, what's my purpose? What's my meaning? And we talk a lot about that in our training academies and through Responder Strong, which we'll get to, is I love the existential philosophy that life doesn't have its own inherent meaning. It's up to each one of us to create our own meaning and purpose. Yeah. And when that meaning and purpose is challenged or destroyed, well, then we got to just suck it up and, and find another meaning and purpose, take in the information. And that goes with the emotional intelligence. The, the, the You can't just change it. Like yes. Yeah. We don't, I mean, we just talked, I'm with Jen K. that's a cast I posted today about core values. Like it's ingrained in us and you don't just switch on to something else. Like you mm-hmm. got to kind of like maybe like change your approach or change the way you go about it. But like once it's there, like that's what it is. Like that's. Mm-hmm. That's what you're dealing with. Right. It's the flexibility that you talked about in the neuroscience realm with yeah. neuro-optimize. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to have flexible minds. We need to understand we can't imprinting, we can't keep imprinting the way we want our experience or we want our world to be on a world that is not right. <laughs> compliant with that. Right. Well, it's, it's, once you unpack it a little bit, it's not that big a deal. And no. it doesn't minimize like the heavy conversation. It's just once you kind of really understand what is what you're dealing with like if you have kiddo that's you know labeled autistic okay well that's that's kind of packaging a lot of ways the brain functions but if we just understand how that brain works and then we teach or reach out accordingly then that navigates around a whole bunch of stuff like it's not that big a deal to really ask a better way in that scenario exactly. but that's not normal exactly ask. yeah 
and to realize that I'm not my ideas. I'm not my perceptions. I can let go of those and I can yeah. be unattached to those and move forward with something that better fits my experience now. Yes. And yeah. And doesn't rob me of my value and my meaning and my hope. Well, and, and, and even if society at some point is seeing you and kind of labeling you at, for a minute, I, again, these conversations, social media, I think it's happening so much more that so much less, that stigma is less impacting um, as it once was. I still think we have a long way to go, mm-hmm. but I really think the mental health, mental conversation, talking about therapy, you see basketball players talking about neurofeedback or anxiety or mental health. Absolutely. So you see kiddos can see their heroes, hashtag influencers, um, seeking a, a path accordingly. So even if their parents don't get it, they'll listen to basketball player. Exactly. So that opens up the door. Exactly. And those are the the normalizers. Yeah. The people who have respect, who have stature and status, and when who are models, consciously or subconsciously, yeah. for the young population and even for, for adults. But hopefully the, consciously. <laughs> that's my argument around influencers. Like, please everyone know what your words Be mean. Conscious. But yes, yes, yes. That we'll take it either fair. way. Yeah. yeah. But okay. And, um, yeah, I found in the ER the exact same situation I was finding in the field and just started to feel that lack of fulfillment again. Like, here, I'm doing everything that I wanted to do, but I'm not having the impact that I wanted. At that time, the health and safety officer job came open in the fire department. So I thought, this is fantastic. I know, right, yeah. universe? Thank yeah. you. That looks like fun. Dude, I'm of. ready now. Pick um, me up. Yeah. <laughs> Get me out. Yeah. Eject. Um, but uh, I thought, this is great. You know, I've... I got to the place where I realized I can't help all the citizens of Aurora, start working in the hospital. I can't help the people of the greater Denver area. But now this health and safety officer role, it's 350 people that I know, that I like, that I have rapport with. I can help them to live better better lives. So then that repercusses through their lives and their families and their communities that way. It's like, this is what I want to do. Key community influencers. You don't need the whole world. You just need the people speaking to the world. Oh, I like that. Yeah, we're here. Yeah. <laughs> you know the science and all the good, the real data, and I'll just give you quick, quick uh, marketing quips. <laughs> Branding is not my thing. Yeah, I love it. I got you, girl. <laughs> um, so that came up. I tested. I got it. And it was awesome. I immediately started talking about we needed a mental wellness program. The chiefs understood the need, but they didn't prioritize it financially. And, and I, when was this? this? Gosh, that was I only asked timelines because I'm curious as like when these conversations were happening, when it was considered acceptable because that growth is yes. is notable. And it wasn't acceptable yet. It was 2011. Oh, okay. Um, I was able to show them the data. I said, hey, suicide is our leading occupational killer. Yeah, that's not, not that being, long ago, really. No, it isn't. Yeah. And it wasn't recognized. You know, people were proud to recognize, oh, cardiac's our leading killer. I'm like, well, yeah, it is if you discount cancer and suicide. And right. then people came around to the point where they were proud. Cancer is the leading killer in the fire service. We're like, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, it is, if you don't count suicide. Um, and now that we look at it, wow. and it's, okay. it took years for this to come about. So we knew suicide was our leading killer then. We just weren't talking about it. And between the place where you are a healthy, functioning, whole firefighter and where you're to the point where you're having suicidal ideations, there's a whole lot of a whole spectrum suffering that doesn't need to happen. Do you think they were like on the marketing front because they needed firefighters, like almost propaganda? They were bearing some of that conversation on suicide because they didn't feel to know or they just straight up didn't want to address it or it just wasn't of importance? Stigma. Um, wow. Okay. Well, and you look at it, all the, um, emergency response professions or most of the emergency response professions are very masculine cultures and they mm-hmm. tend to be very toxic mas- masculine cultures. Yeah. Um, it's the pull it up by your bootstraps, suck it up buttercup. If you can't well, it's handle it. It's kind of it. our American culture, honestly. It is. Oh, and it's on steroids in, yeah, in okay. this field. And, um, and it goes between like all races, all genders, all oh, yeah. every, I mean, that's just like how the culture is. Correct. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and to, that's what I would think. Right. And to survive in that culture, you have to adopt it. And if, and I saw this a lot in females and I saw it myself that if you were female in this culture, Mm -hmm. you had to go above and beyond because 
I would completely, well, I think that's similar to uh, like bombshell in the news media situation. And like anytime where I think it's like male, female roles, like by each other, mm-hmm. I always think, and this might be of my own ignorance, that the woman has to prove themselves 10 times more and you, there's less gray area to, to mess up. Absolutely. And I, I found this in um, Fire Academy. I found this when I was on the line that if a man makes a mistake, he made a mistake. If a woman makes a mistake, it's because women don't belong in the fire service. Sure. Even sure. nationally right now, only 5% of firefighters are female. Are so, you serious? Yeah, it's low. It's really low. Uh, law enforcement, it's about 13% female. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and how much of that is um, people of color? Good question. I don't know the statistics okay. on that. It's lower. I would think so. Um, I'm still trying to, this is pressure to Lambo and Val. I'm like, we need to come do a cast. So I'm literally putting it on air that they need to get their ass out here. Two f- female firefighters that we know. Okay. Um, but anyways, so that's what, I didn't realize it was that, there was that much of a discrepancy between men and women. Yeah. Okay. Very much so. Um, but one of the good things is I found that when you were coming in that, or when I was coming in, that was the wall I hit. Um, I, I was, I felt like I was judged for being female, sure. even in the grocery store. So, you know, big joke. Cops like to make fun of firefighters. We go grocery shopping every shift because we live in a firehouse oh, and right. we, yeah, we all shop together. We figure out who's going to cook. But I can't tell you how many times a woman I didn't even know would come up to me in the grocery store. The rest of my crew stand there and say, you took my man's job. Like, No way. Seriously? Me? She said, yeah, you only got hired because you're female. I was like, fuck you. No. Well, well, you I start, didn't say that. Start online. dating women then. Or get your job. I mean, just to have that widespread really? assumption. So I felt like I was getting it from all quarters. Like... I got this job because I outtested your man. You know, bring him. Bring oh him no, I'm right in, I, again. I mean, yeah. honestly, I'm deeply embarrassed for her as a female, mm-hmm. but also for the guy she's married to because <laughs> you didn't take anything. Like it was earned. Even if there was like a sense of, I mean, I had Title IX in college, and people argue that like women's sports don't make money. Most sports don't make money. There's like a few men's football teams and a few basketball teams, and I don't even think there's baseball teams that make money. But anyways, point being, like affirmative action, some of these things are so necessary, and you still have to qualify. You still have to pass all these tests. You still have to be a functioning member of whatever it is that you're applying for. Right. So for someone to be so ignorant, and it stings my heart that it was a fellow female, um, they would go out of their way to say something. Even if they feel that way behind closed doors, gross, but whatever, to go out of their way and like, I mean, people don't even go out of their way to compliment other people, but to say something negative. Mm. And to feel that they're so justified to yeah, say it in a right. public setting with me and my crew. It was like, my crew, trust me, where I'm part of the crew. But I did find that as I got into my career and I was able to prove myself and show that I had worth and I had value and I was working with men and women who understood that the standards weren't lowered for anybody based on their race or based on their gender. We all met that standard and then we all have special skill sets above and beyond that. I I tell the story of a buddy of mine who's on the department, much taller, much bigger than I am. He is awesome at lifting heavy things off people, at, at um, moving heavy things. That's fantastic. But we were together on an attic fire, and he didn't fit through the the scuttle into the attic with his gear on. I did. So then oh. he fed me the hose, and I went in and did fire attacks. So we each have skills. Yeah. We have value. And we don't want everybody to be six foot eight. And, well, and that's and every functioning pounds, team. You right? need point guards, and then you need yeah, centers, and you exactly. need all the things that... Duh, that's Physical what it is. skills, personalities, yeah. intellectual capacity. Yeah. Or the brain piece or the human piece or the conversation piece or the market. Like you need, the best thing you can do is get a well-rounded team in general. Exactly. Whatever it is. You don't want your team to be carbon copy players. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they did. The NF, or, um, NBA had all, I'm not a huge basketball person, so I'm probably going to botch this, but the five best players come to one team and they didn't do well and blah, blah, blah. And it was a perfect metaphor of like, yes, you can get great, or CrossFit, 10 great individual athletes. doesn't mean they're going to be the best team. It doesn't mean it's going to be the best situation. You need a team that's good 
good at being a team. Exactly. Um, and Lambo has talked about how she's good at crawling in really weird spaces and like all she is, yeah. the crazy shit she's done. I don't even know what the certifications mm-hmm. around that are, but it's some crazy stuff. And mm-hmm. again, it's just it's a hard reality just to exist in. But okay, so we're a firefighter. Okay, yeah. So um the Chiefs didn't prioritize it financially, and I couldn't blame them. Cancer was also a huge issue in the fire service. Yeah. We knew a lot of it was dermal absorption. It was dirty gear. We needed second sets of bunkers. We needed laundering facilities. Um, we know that sleep deprivation is a huge issue. We are understaffed. We needed more FTEs. We needed more stations. So I understood. And it wasn't a priority until the night of the theater shooting. So I got a call at 1230 oh, in the morning from the chief saying, okay. hey, um, somebody just lit up the theater. Uh, we know this is going to be a problem. Can you roll out that's that program real, you've been real, talking yeah, about? Okay. So this was 2012. And, uh, is that 2012? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Over seven years ago. Yeah. Wow. Um, it feels like yesterday. I know. Time's weird. Yeah. Um, so we couldn't, we cobbled together a response. It was inadequate, but we started our peer support team after that. Um, the chiefs were great. They're like, yep, we're going to let you start it. Um, we had a lot of people who were interested in it, but they said, nobody's going to use you. Like, ah, that's an old school belief. Once we got people who were peers, who had shared experience, who knew the value of confidentiality, who weren't going to talk about things on the rig or at the kitchen table, and who knew how to navigate the system, could normalize experiences, could help people out, one-on-one contacts went through the roof. Yeah. It wasn't long before officers would start calling us and saying, hey, you know, I'm not struggling, but I think my crew's struggling with this call. And not long after that when it was, that sucked. Can you come talk to us? Um, And it was interesting when we talk about the adverse childhood experiences and people wanting to be rescuers and helpers. I've noticed just from my own personal standpoint over the years that a lot of people who get into the peer support team are getting into it because they're struggling and they want to know how to help themselves and help other people too at the same time. So noble, noble goals, but that became a big topic of conversation. There's been quite a few prominent suicides off of peer support teams and the barrier that, Hey, when I'm supposed to be the one who has the answers, when I'm supposed to be the one who knows how to network the system, when I'm the best resource person, arguably on the department and I don't have it together, I can't tell people. Yeah. And, yeah, and and a lot of the peer supporters I've talked to have said, who's going to peer support, peer support? Because sometimes we hear some crappy, crappy stuff in addition to crappy, crappy stuff that we experienced. Um, well, do you, is, is there a group for that? Because, I mean, I think there's just on the business side, I think there's such power in saying, I don't know. And the good mm-hmm. business people will say, then you never say, I don't know. You, do, you just say you have the answer and then you go and find it. And that's fine in certain situations. I get it. And I think if you're really being transparent in this day and age and you're saying social media or algorithms or whatever the business conversation is, I think it's, I consult with my other humans and other companies being like, if someone comes to you and says, I don't know, that's not the worst thing. I actually would appreciate that transparency and I'd see that as a positive flag of they're being real with me because they can BS you and show you what you want to say and like, and, and want to get you into what they think you should be doing. Like when you just said, that's old school, I think no one's going to hire you. No one's going to do this. Well, that's the old school way of thinking, which now is you don't understand the consumer now. You don't understand our community now that they are actually hurting or they do want a certain thing, that this is an evolving process. So when a business person or a person that's of um, leadership on the, the the business side or the leadership side says, I don't know, that might be the real answer. And that might Absolutely. be a, a, a whole space of like, I don't know, but let's let's figure this out together. Or let's cultivate a community now because and now I don't know, so let's learn. I think I almost think that's a, a positive sign. Oh, and I love that. I was listening to a podcast with Ray Dalio yesterday. When oh, he yes, back. I love him. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And he was talking about not only in the business relationship world, but in relationships overall, the two biggest barriers are ego and not recognizing yes. our blind spots. Yeah. And he talks a lot about, hey, being able to sit there and be open and honest and say, 
I don't know. Oh, let's yes. work. I don't even know. Yeah. Dude, hashtag See? goals on him. But yes. <laughs> yeah. I know. yeah. I know. Oh, that makes my heart full. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. So, and I, I love that concept. And I think that that's where more and more people are moving towards. And it dovetails so nicely with Brene Brown's work on vulnerability. Yeah. yeah. Not, not feeling like you have to front, not feeling like I got to be the facade. I have to be the one who knows it, who's got it together, but being able to connect with somebody at the level to say, oh man, uh, I've felt that way too. I, I'm so glad you told me. Yeah. Um, you're not alone. I don't know what to do. Let's figure it out together. Yeah. And what a, what a point of power rather than trying to put up walls, false walls to separate ourselves yes. and, and pretend like we've got the answers when we don't. And right. Yeah. Well, and sometimes I was on the plane once and, um, it was late at night and I freaking hate, actually I don't hate traveling, but I don't love it, but I was getting off the plane. I probably had a couple gins, who knows, but, um, was getting off the plane and there was this really awesome exchange in front of me between a husband and his wife. And it was, and they were, I don't know, 60 plus, like they were older and they were really cute, still holding hands. So I kind of saw the bat. I'm like, Oh, that's such a positive thing. You never see that in America anymore. Um, but loving relationship. And then the, as they were getting off, the mom was talking to like the daughter, I presume on the phone and something had happened and the mom was, you know, kind of offering, she's like something, something happened. I couldn't catch my flight or whatever. And the mom was like, well, go get a hotel, whatever, blah, blah. blah. And she was like, oh, she doesn't want to do it. So as they were getting off, the mom was explaining the situation to the dad and the dad goes, you know, maybe she just wanted support and she didn't need a solution. And I was Love like, that. oh, I'm like deep moment, couple gins deep at uh, uh, getting off the plane. I'm so tired. It was like midnight or later. And I was like, that is so real. Like sometimes you don't always have to have a solution for someone. You're just there to be like, I hear you. Exactly. Okay. And I love that you bring that up because that's one of the big issues we find in the responder world is responders are fixers. Yeah. You know, the tones go off. You got four minutes to get on scene, another four or five minutes to solve it, and then you get ready for the next call. Right. And that's a very, very valuable skill set in the occupation. But we're never taught to shut that off. So that can translate yeah. into a bunch of problems in the home space because a significant other or a child or even a friend or a neighbor just wants to be heard, but we want to fix it. Yeah. And, and that's not satisfying. Well, so, I think the more knowledge you have, which you, I mean, you have a ton of knowledge. Like I, I know when someone comes into my like fitness space, like shoulder hurts, I'm like, okay, get some turmeric, stretch out, call this rehab company. Blah, and they're just like, oh, I didn't need all that. I'm like, right. you call me if you need anything. Else. <laughs> and it's like, probably just like, okay, well my shoulder hurts too. And it's like, okay. Like, so I don't know. It's you, I think the more, you know, the harder it is to like rein that in. Yeah. And, um, just hearing the emotion behind it. Have you read any of Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication? No, oh. I know you've talked about it. That's, yeah. I've heard it from a couple of people. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I love it because the whole thing is he said, most people just want their emotions to be heard mm -hmm. and want their emotions to be recognized and validated. Yep. I understand you feel that way. It's okay. You feel that way. Not that we agree. Not that right. we're going to join him with it, but just like, no, I, I hear it. And he talks about how many conflicts get resolved because we just hear the emotion behind it. Like, mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. You didn't need a solution. We don't need to stress ourselves out. Well, and if you think about when you're hyped up or you're hurting or something, all you want is someone to, to kind of listen and then validate you maybe a little bit being like, I get it. Yeah. Like, that's shitty. It, even if you're completely in the wrong, it's kind of like, okay. And then when it all blows over, you're like, okay, now I can hear some solution. But exactly. Know. And I'm not in the solution space right now. Right. I want empathy. Yeah, yeah. I want. <laughs> Just be mad at them. Hate them with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but uh, so back to the fire department. After um, the theater shooting, we went and created the peer support team. We built out resources. We had a contract clinician who was really awesome. At that time, the University of Anschutz, the deputy director of the National Center for Depression, Matt Vogel, came over and he said, Hey, I want to work with firefighters. What do you need? Okay. So, well, and started talking to him about 
We need to stop working in isolation, not only within the silos of our agency, but within the silos of our branches, because this isn't just the fire service. It's law enforcement, it's dispatch, it's EMS, and it goes on a whole host of other roles. And you had quite literally seen this. This wasn't like putting together a report, like your life experience would be like, no, bitch, I just fucking lived all this. Exactly. And I was able to tell him, hey, suicide's our leading occupational killer. And he was blown away because nobody was talking about it. So yeah, we have depression, we have anxiety, we have substance misuse, we have domestic violence, we have a ton of issues issues but we're not addressing them so he thought that was a good approach didn't know how to fund it we maintained contact a couple years later he created the national center uh, national center for behavioral health um, was this in denver or um, Colorado? yeah it was at, it was part of cu anschutz it eventually became oh, okay. the national mental health innovation center he reached out to me and said hey i think we can take the conversation to a different level so this was in late 2015 we started talking about building a program that eventually became responder strong oh okay yeah God, this so, was years in the making okay yeah so in august of 2016 we had our first responder strong meeting it was 35 responders that i'd been working with locally as a health and safety officer some of our advocates psychologists mainly And we started talking about ways we could improve the mental health supports, not only for responders, but for their families, because we knew the families were suffering too. Um, Responders bring trauma home in a lot of ways that they don't recognize. Um, So we created this program. We tapped into this undercurrent of momentum and passion and drive and determination. We just blew up big by February of 2017. Matt told me, hey, you know, you need to figure out what you want to do. He said, you can stay in the fire department, but if you want this to succeed, you need to come run it. So I left the department, which was a really tough decision, started running Responders Strong full-time, and we just grew exponentially. We did a lot of work um, in two realms, intervention and prevention. One intervention is to get people who are struggling and suffering to recognize, hey, this isn't a personal failure. This isn't a weakness. Um, This isn't because you're not good enough for the job. This is a stress injury, basically. You are being exposed to a lot of, of emotional intensity in the complete absence of the skills to manage it. And you're embedded in a culture that tells you you're weak and tells you you're bad if you can't handle this. Um, so we really want to... Yeah, yeah. Cow. And um, we... We, I love what you touched on earlier. We talk about it more in terms of performance. This isn't mental illness. Sorry, this is... Colette, hey! No. Sorry, this is my life right now. This <laughs> <laughs> real. Okay. Okay. Sorry. No worries. As we're into like deep conversation. I know. <laughs> then I said pause and throw them outside. But anywho. <laughs> She's cute. New dog, yeah. Uh, so we talk about um, recognizing this is a stress injury. This isn't weakness. Um, we haven't been prepared and really equipping people to recognize, hey, when you are drinking heavily, it's probably not because you have a character flaw. Or you're when, thirsty. Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> or you're screaming at your spouse, you're screaming yeah. at your kids or whatever. Let's look at how you manage stress. Stress is, you've seen the research. It's estimated about 85% of the U.S. medical system visits are stress-related in nature. So really educating responders with, hey, lots of times these are ineffective attempts to cope. These are stress overloads. This is normal. You don't need to feel this way. This is preventable. And what we talk about a lot is stress injury because I don't feel like mental illness is the right term. 
aside from being heavily stigmatized, this isn't mental illness. This is a result of an injury. It's just like a, a muscle injury. I would even say just life. Like yeah. you're just like life's coming at you a million miles an hour. And that's, this is you jumping over speed bumps and just dealing with shit that comes in. Exactly. And it's recoverable. You yeah. can heal from it. Yeah. I'd like to tell or use the analogy when I teach or present about if I went out on the fire ground, you know, I'm in a structure fire and I fall and break my leg what's going to happen? Everybody said, well, you know, they pull you out, they put you in an ambulance, they patch it up, they take you to the ER, you have surgery, your duty status gets changed, you do something light duty. It's not that you're denigrated, you're not looked at as, oh, you're no longer a firefighter, you're not good enough. You kind of get glamorized, whoa, nice job, you know, you, um, you get shifted to a different role that's still viewed, viewed as useful in the agency. You recover, you go through rehab, you get back to the point where you're able to function fully again, and you're put back in the game. Nobody ever would look at me and say, hey, Kelly, we don't think you have the femurs for this job. But it happens all the time when somebody has depression or anxiety, they get ostracized, which furthers that sense of um, humiliation and not belonging and not being enough. Okay, let me just throw them outside really quick because this is... And we're back. Okay. So it's entirely the other way. If somebody's struggling with depression or anxiety or has a DUI, um, they just get ostracized. And okay. everybody looks at them as um, this is emblematic of their worth as a person, their worth as a responder, which just adds insult to the injury. When we can look at it from a non-judgmental stance with, yeah, of course you're having all these stress reactions because we didn't teach you how to deal with all this. Yeah. We didn't teach you how to cope. I mean, wasn't it happy enough, even if it wasn't, like, on the surface level with everyone there understanding that, I mean, yes, there's judgment, but, like, within the community, when everyone's kind of experiencing was experiencing it, wasn't there empathy, like, accordingly? Like, we're like, I get it, but I can't say anything? Ah, I think there was empathy, but there was fear of looking weak. Okay. I mean, that's gotcha. how toxic the culture has been, and the okay. stigma is so deeply ingrained. So a lot of what we did with Responder Strong was really try to normalize it through education, not just educating the responder, but educating their significant others their leaders, and also educating the clinicians who want to work with them. Yeah. I know so many responders who have reached out to a clinician, and it took intense uh, determination to do that, to overcome the, imper- the yeah. internal barriers, to reach out and ask for help, and went to a clinician who meant well, but didn't understand the occupational exposures, didn't understand the chronic underlayment of trauma. Mm-hmm. That So a clinician might look at it as it's quote-unquote just alcoholism. Like, yeah, if you don't understand that this is trauma underneath it, you can't treat it. Right. Um, So looking at educating the clinicians in addition to everybody else to, hey, just because, in particular to leaders, just because you're a hammer, not every problem's a nail. Right. One one case in point, we worked with a group, Status Code 4 Incorporated, in Colorado Springs. Great group. Retired paramedic and retired Air Force. Um, Husband and wife couple who uh, one's a psychologist and one's a PhD educator. They do a lot of work around awareness and prevention. They wanted to do a documentary series on the way responders inadvertently bring trauma home to their family. We help support that through networking, getting the the responders to give their personal testimonials. Then the power of the series is all based on personal testimonial. Responders in uniform talking about the worst days of their lives and what happened. Is this out there? This oh, yeah, it's, it's out there. Yeah. Oh, you just, if this? anybody Googles uh, mm-hmm. Lifeline and Status Code 4 okay. or SC4I for Status Code 4 Incorporated, it's out there. They are wonderful. Uh, wow. All the documentaries are 10 to 20 minutes in length. They are free of use to anybody who wants to use it to spark conversation, increase awareness, um, really impactful stuff. But the last one that we helped them with and we got the grant funding for it was around substance use, misuse disorder. 
what we wanted to do is put out there that lots of times substance misuse is an attempt to cope with the trauma. Mm -hmm. It's an attempt to cope with a stress injury. See it that way and salvage the person, save the person. Don't just terminate them, which is oftentimes what happens and many times what leads to suicide ideation or taking one's own life. Um, We were so stoked. The video came out and the funding agency for it, Community First Foundation, we wanted to give them metrics. They're interested in the seven county metro area here. So we sent the link to all the chiefs for the emergency response agencies and a little quick survey. How does your agency handle DUIs? Um, What's your personal belief about DUIs? Have you ever heard of this um, view, this lens on it, stress injury formation? Would you consider changing the policies on your department? What's the prevalence of prescription drug abuse, which I find interesting. We find responders have a higher likelihood of becoming addicted to prescription drugs Hmm. when they are suffering from a stress injury and are are unaware of it. So you're in this culture that doesn't allow you to talk about your soul pain, doesn't allow you to talk about your heart pain, but you blow out your shoulder, you go to work comp and you get an opioid. (laughs) Wow. Not only does your shoulder feel better, your brain feels better. Yeah. And your heart feels better. And that really increases the risk for addiction without anybody understanding why. Yeah. So anyway, we put this video out there and one of the chiefs from a local fire department called me a couple days later, said, Hey, I'm so sorry. I never filled out that survey, but I got to tell you, he said, I watched this video. There was a guy who was really far along in our disciplinary process. He was about to be fired. I saw him in an entirely different light when I saw this video. And he said, I jumped on my rig. I went to his station. I called him into the office. Poor guy thought I was there to fire him. I had him watch the video. He said, he's just dreaming tears. I look over and say, is this you? He said, yeah, my wife's already left me. She took the kids. I thought you were going to fire me. He's like, I was going to. He said, I just felt like I was this piece of crap because I'm drinking. You know, I'm just like the people we run on. How am I any different than these frequent flyers? And why am I doing this? He said, I started drinking because of the dreams and the nightmares. And uh, it was trying to deal with coma or with trauma. Yeah. So the chief was amazing. They comped him time off. They got him into rehab. They helped him pay for it. And his family's back. He's back on the job. He's doing great. And, you know, that... That anecdote alone, the whole video was worth it. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, if it's, it's one person, and like that's so huge. So with responder star, I'm always curious because this is such like a world, like a human problem. Like it's yes. for humanity worldwide, what have you. Um, what kind of? How did you guys do outreach? Like, was it, with Responder Strong, and I know it was a funded program, but still limited resources because the problem's overwhelming, and it's, you know, a few of you guys, and even with X amount of dollars, it's never really enough. Like, it's such a huge thing. How were you guys, like, was Denver Police coming to you, or how were the right organizations of need coming to you or finding you? Or, like, how did you guys, what was your outreach? Ah, great question. So, I was Responder Strong's only full-time employee. Right. We had a lot of volunteers. We have a tremendously dedicated volunteer base of about 80. Holy cow. 80 people in the metro area. But we also had a mailing list of people who were active with us. That was 660 people. Holy cow. Um, and, and it, it still was... is. I, I shouldn't be talking past tense. We're transitioning right now. Okay. But um, we are volunteer led, but volunteer driven. So we had ambassadors embedded in a lot of these agencies, people who okay. were really passionate about improving the mental wellness of emergency responders who are working alone in isolation mm-hmm. within their agencies. When we came together, the synergy out of that was just phenomenal. We held quarterly meetings where we usually get anywhere between 40 and 80 people. It grew over time. Um, people who are very passionate and started making connections and networking people. Okay. Uh, at one point I was a little overwhelmed with the meeting. So I tried to change it to a biannual meeting. 
the first biannual meeting, I got the feedback, go back to a quarterly meeting. There is no other place that gives us this venue to, to connect across disciplines. We had psychiatrists, psychologists, facility um, managers, chiefs, line firefighters, cops, EMS. Uh, we had dispatchers. Um, we started to get crime scene investigators showing up, coroner's personnel. Wow. It was people who were all very interested. Educators showed up. And this gave them the opportunity to meet with other people and to really come up with some incredible collaborations. So, okay. so you guys were hosting like meetings with you had ambassadors and people talking and then meetings where anyone could come and learn. Exactly. Got so it. we okay. did a lot of community organization and I'm really proud of the work we did around that. At the same time, we had a lot of work groups that these volunteers participated in. So we created a four-hour curriculum enhancement for the community college system. Okay. We knew that to change our culture, we had to come from the top down, but from the bottom up. Yeah. The community colleges in Colorado train more than half the emergency responders with a particular presence in the rural oh. communities because those agencies don't have the budgets to run their own training academies. Okay. So oftentimes the community colleges are the ones who run the academies, who train the candidates or the recruits for the agencies. So we okay. got in there, got four hours of awareness for each of the four branches, fire, EMS, um, law enforcement, and dispatch to talk about the statistics particular wow. to that branch, talk about stress injury formation, talk about how to recognize the signs in yourself and in your coworkers, and what to do about it. Um, really well received. We did pre and post assessment, showed a statistically significant improvement in knowledge from the beginning to the end. We got great personal testimonials. So we've been doing that. We also built out a 13 standard resiliency standard based on job performance worksheets, which most responders are familiar with. Every year or every two years, you get trained on certain abilities that you need to be proficient at to be good at your job. Okay. So we wanted to put the mental health stuff, the resiliency stuff in that okay. same format because it confers agency buy-in importance that these skills are just as important as knowing how to hit a hydrant, how to drag a hose, yeah. how to d drive defensively, how to use... Um, well, you can't do any of those things if you're not there. Exactly. So it's a conversation. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the big things we wanted to shift is, hey, the greatest skill set, the one that's most important, is the one that protects you from your greatest exposure, the stress and trauma and suffering of others. Yeah. Dude, metaphor for life. Yes. 100%. Yeah, yeah, that is, exactly. That's life in a nutshell. So, like, get to know yourself, build your mental armor, because here comes the world. Like, yeah, exactly. That's literally what it is. So now, was this curriculum, um, did you keep it, I, I know it's worldwide problem, but in Denver and now is in other states, like is this a curriculum that you can pass on to community colleges across America or like what's next steps? Absolutely. Next step is to get it out to community <laughs> colleges across the country. Okay. And we're working with some partners. We have been a very collaborative organization since the beginning. We don't feel like we need recognition. We don't feel like yeah. we need ownership. We just want to get out there and do as much good. And I think going back to being responder-led and responder-driven, we see the problems from the inside. So when we talked earlier about hope, having um, – Understanding the issue, seeing the goal, and having the agency. Our organization has been the one that, because we're all experienced, we all have lived experience, we understand the barriers, we understand the obstacles and the yeah. problems, we know what the goal is, and working together, we've had the agency to get yeah. there. So, we, and when we first created our organization, we debated, and it, it seemed like semantics at the beginning, whether we were going to call ourselves for first responders or for emergency responders. We chose emergency hmm. responders because our belief was that most people hear first responder and think cops, fire, and EMS. Okay. They miss the first first responder who are the dispatchers. Oh, and okay. it missed this whole other host of people who aren't on the first dispatch but are still operating in the same environment we are. One that exposes you to the intense trauma and suffering of others 
in the complete absence of any skills or preparation to defend yourself and that embeds you in a culture that tells you you're weak if you can't just handle it. Yeah. So we've had outreach from crime scene investigators, coroner's personnel, oh, marketing, PR branding. staff. Yeah. It sounds simple, but like, because you know the associations with people's brains and what the messages you're telling them, doesn't matter what scenario you're in, that the branding or the awareness around, like the associated meaning is so powerful. And that's why every business or company or even 501c3, like nonprofit has to play this game because it's how you communicate to the world. So anyways, Absolutely. fascinating. So we know that our content is relevant to everybody. I yeah. mean, if you look at the, uh, lawyer community there's huge suicide oh, rates there yeah. dentists medical yeah dentists, medical professionals mm -hmm. so I haven't met a single person who has said no this doesn't apply to us I mean pro athletes <laughs> yeah. I mean, everywhere um, but we knew that we couldn't just put it out there as oh this is for everyone no we yeah. had to specialize with what we knew we wanted to build in that immediate expansion child welfare workers victims advocates have reached out to us um and we, we've told them, hey, we're not focusing on your population, but it's totally relevant. You can take it. You can modify it. Do whatever you want. Um, but we really see that this is uh, us focusing just on the mental health aspect because it's been so heavily stigmatized in the emergency response culture. We felt like we needed to take a battering ram. And it's not just us. There's organizations yeah. across the country doing it. If you oh, look, okay. Oh, so yeah. there's, like, there's comparable situations happening. Yeah. Um, we're one of the ones... We're one of the few who operate the way that we do. Okay. Um, but there's a group in Oklahoma, Warriors Rest, who started focused on law enforcement, okay. mental health. They've expanded to other branches. We're partners with them. They're probably going to be our conduit for the dissemination of the curriculum content that we created. Okay. Um, and we found, as we've reached out and made connections over the past couple years, there's some people who just aren't in alignment, who yeah. aren't focused on what we're focused on, who don't operate the same way we do, and we let them go. Yeah. The people that we... That's okay. Yeah. It's like choosing your clientele. Like, oh, exactly. And when we found really our tribe, groups yeah. like Warriors Rest, we're like, yeah. We yeah. see things the same way. We have the same values. We are aligned. Let's go. Let's yeah. amplify each other. Yeah. And I love that. We're at the point right now that we are in the process of leaving CU Anschutz where we've been housed. We are going to a new home at a place called All Clear Foundation, which is based here in Denver. They have national reach. Their goal is to aggregate corporate low level funds, so corporate donation, to support. But you always need the money to make them make the big move, and, and oh, exactly. I, people get confused that like it's it's a business game. Then like I will play both sides of that. Like I love and hate the business world, and I love and not hate the five hundred one c like the nonprofit world. But there's balance within both those sides, and you need like good people on both angles to fund the dream, the cause, and the message. So. Love that. Identify. So yeah. Well, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> just done enough reps to see both sides. So exactly. And that's where my big shortcoming has been is I'm the operations side. I have the lived yeah. experience. I see what needs to be done. I see my ways of getting to it, but I don't have a business background. I don't have a fundraising background. That's what all Claire Foundation's bringing for you us. I kind of do. I know you maybe not on that level, but I really, when people say that, because when I'm as consulting, like I'm, people think like I'm, they're sold on their narrative of like, I'm not this or I'm not that. I'm like, Ugh, actually, I'm here to tell you what to do. And I'm telling you, you actually kind of know more than you think. And like, there are angles to it. Cause like business is coming in authentic, coming with like, I want to do this because of a sound authentic reason and not just because of the margin I can make from, you know, the profit or whatever, or from the sale. Uh, it's a lot of those business pieces aren't looked at as again, branded as business, but those are really instrumental pieces to even having a successful business. Right. Um, so I would encourage you to embrace, you are good at business. You're phenomenal building relationships, which is business at its very base. Um, and you just, sometimes you do need some of these niche specific business people that are skilled in fundraising in this, but again, that's relationships and that's selling or promoting or fundraising for an authentic product voice or message. So 
I don't know. I, I think you are all those things. You just need a super professional in those arenas. Well, and um, I know you and I have talked about that, making the transition to yeah. this has value. And, yes. and I'm bringing value to it. And compensation for that expertise and for that knowledge and experience yeah. isn't bad. And I think that's been one of the things I've been shifting for is, oh, if it's good, I shouldn't. there shouldn't be any money involved. Like, yeah. No, because money also conveys value and how it's perceived by... Well, if you know people that know a lot less than you with a lot less experience are getting paid a lot more, it, <laughs> it limits the conversation. And even if you don't care about the money piece, if you know that their message is getting more exposure than yours and they genuinely know less, you go back to wanting to serve people. You're not serving people if you know someone is promoting their message that knows less than you. And it may even... it may. They may know less, but it may be something they don't even know the truth or they're not, they're promoting incorrect messages or it's funded by a cause that isn't real. It's all smoke and mirrors. Yes. So that, that mitigates yeah. the conversation of is it's okay to take money. It's okay to take money. I mean, I, as you were saying, like, I may not have a million credentials behind my name. Well, I don't either. I'm starting a podcast. I'm putting my voice out there. Well, I'm not a doctor. I don't have my MBA. I don't have this, but I have, you know, 20 plus years of experience professionally athletic what have you and people can decide if they want to listen or not that's fine um and there's always that imposter syndrome i think in the back of all my leaders minds but really again you look back at like who's speaking alongside you if you're confident in your message and your experience you need it's you're doing it's a it's a disservice to yourself and to society to not speak on behalf of what you've experienced so yeah there's my rant on that. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. <laughs> and dude, if you listen to this, I know you've done other casts. If you listen back to all your experience, and we even touched on a lot of it, like it's a wealth of knowledge and experience. It's unbelievable. It really is. Well, and I like what we talked about earlier is focusing, um, shifting the focus away from mental health, definitely shifting yeah. away from mental illness, which is heavily stigmatized. And I think inaccurate as a label for people many times. Yeah. Um, when something is a response to life that is initially determined or designed to be protective, but it becomes a chronic issue when it, it it's prolonged. And we talk about that a lot with um, post-traumatic stress injury. Yeah. That no, in the moment, that is a defensive tactic. And that's awesome. Yeah. When the defenses never come down, that's a problem. Yeah. Um, but growth can come out of it. And I love transitioning that, not labeling somebody with, hey, you're stuck with this disease, this condition. You're always going to be that way. You're always going to need meds, which is a big barrier for a lot of people into admitting, yeah, I'm struggling with depression or I'm struggling with anxiety, that fear that I'm always going to need meds and what that means to me and what it means to my self-image. Yeah. Um, so I really like changing that and talking about it. Hey, this is how you perform better as a human, mm-hmm. as a mother, as a spouse, as a firefighter, as a cop, as um, you know anything in life. This is this is human stuff. This is how we get better. And so, as you and I talked about earlier, one of the things I'm excited about is Responder Strong transitions into All Clear Foundation, and it has more of an administrative foundation, more of a fundraising foundation. Um, they have the abilities to maneuver and grow. It sounds like and streamline the process a little bit. Exactly. They are looking for programs like ours that have been regionally successful, who haven't had the capacity internally to expand nationally. They want to take that and help expand it nationally so that it's it's contributing to the greater okay. good, as you just eloquently described. I try. Are, yeah. they, a, are they a nonprofit? They are. They're okay. a nonprofit. So Responder Strong's moving over there. The nonprofit is was originally founded by Global Medical Response, which is the oh, largest- Oh, you just tell me that. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Okay. EMS Corporation in the US. I've been talking to their CEO for a while and talking about how EMS oftentimes gets the shaft yeah. because they're such a fragmented industry or profession. A lot of it's volunteer- and then there's the municipal agencies, there's the private agencies. The private agencies for a long time were run like mills. 
the expectation was a five-year career cycle, and it's just brutal for people. There's sleep deprivation. There's poor nutrition. There's toxic exposures, again, without the ability to cope mentally and emotionally with it. And it just becomes this whole snowball of of worsening conditions and EMS professionals. I keep telling them, hey, you know, you have the reach, you have the capacity, you have the awareness to change this for EMS across the country. They have 38,000 employees. Um, And so they offered me a position. Hey, why don't you come here and build um, a program as our director of health, wellness, and resilience and make a difference in our people's lives. What works for us, what we've tested and proven, will then expand to the rest of the community. So I'm excited that I'm stepping back a little bit from Responder Strong, still helping guide it and direct it, but really having this opportunity to look at it from a broader lens like you and I talked about. Yeah. I At the time when we created Responder Strong, I felt like we needed to just focus on mental health. We needed to put it up front in people's faces because it was so stigmatized. Because of the motions across the country and across the world, it's now become less stigmatized. There are the professional journals talk about suicide, depression, anxiety on a regular basis. It's great. Now I want to pull it back into the context of, okay, let's talk about sleep deprivation. Let's talk about chronic cortisol secretion. Let's talk about the development of metabolic diseases like diabetes, which are on a rampage among responders yeah. and population is everywhere. Whole. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about hydration. Let's talk about nutrition and let's talk about just because you're a shift worker you're not damned to have an unhealthy existence. But because your sleep is altered, you need to take more care for it on your days off. And you have to recognize you have a lot less latitude in these other realms. You have to eat well. You have to move. You have to guide your guide or guard your mind so that you're not dwelling on the negative things. Um, And really getting that message across to people that's empowering. If you want to perform your best as a human, you need to look at all these domains. Yes. And actually, I think our, again, our young people are asking those questions earlier outside of, you know, the responder fields and the service fields. I think just people in general, they don't want to be taking medications. They don't want to pay for expensive insurance. They want to feel good. They want, they don't want to work a million hours. Like I do think the generational shift is on um, is more open-minded than ever and it's on the horizon to question that better way and like seek out different avenues versus kind of doing what we were told what we've learned growing up. It, we're starting to see that societal shift. Um, while it may be slow, I think it's awesome. And even the shift around, um, like you're saying, you have to kind of like step away from one baby that you built to step to the next one to make it bigger. Yeah. That evolution in business, there's stigma around that. Like when I see my young companies kind of get bigger and they have to like let go of the small operation to get bigger, but you know, it's, it's a natural product or it's a service or it's something good for the world. You almost have to like let go of some things you built. I think there's stigma in that being like, well, it's no more grassroots. Now you've changed. You, underground hip hop has you gone down mainstream. Yeah. yeah. But, but there's all these I don't want to say compromises there's these evolutionary steps that you have to take in order to get your message out there it's not even about the profit it's about the impact and the message and what you can do on the on the greater scale Um, and that's hard that's that's a process in itself and understanding that oftentimes Mm -hmm. that growth happens to make you sustainable if you're not sustainable exactly what you said earlier you're not really contributing to the greater good because you're just gonna fail Right. Well, and we ha- we constantly have to evolve. Like the process, even when we have a plan, which <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad it turns out you don't need a hard plan because I've never been big planning. <laughs> I'm just out here like going day to day. Um, but like you can't really you can't really plan that much. You all you can do is plan to evolve and plan to be flexible because 
that's what the world is. And things are changing faster than they ever have before. And things are happening earlier. So we have to be able to evolve and stay on it all the time. Absolutely. And that's maddening in itself, but that's what it is. Well, and recognizing our capacity too. One of the statements that's really been resonating with me lately is that a yes to anything is a no to something else. Oh, opportunity cost. That's business 101. Exactly. There's only so much you can do if you're doing something, you're not doing something else. It's real simple. Um, and I think most, again, my varsity humans, like hard chargers, no, no, we're going to try and break the rules. We're going to stretch it out. We're going to fit it all in myself included. We're still learning this, uh, to get it going. And until you break down and you're exhausted and you can't sleep or your hair's falling out or you can't focus, like, right. I mean, this starts to internalize. So, and yes. that's exactly the mindset that leads to burnout, which yeah. is so prevalent. And one of the things we incorporate in our classes is, do you know the story of Lawrence Levy? I don't think so. Oh, awesome guy. He was, he's former CFO of Pixar films. Oh, I, yes. Tell, yeah. tell the story, but yes. Yeah, yeah. So he was part of the dream team that was brought in when Pixar was a failing filmmaker to yeah. turn it around into the behemoth that it is today. So when they did that around the time that Monsters, Inc. came out, he was at the top of the heap socially and in Silicon Valley. He had a lot of prestige. He was making bank. You know, I love the term heap because that's just what it is. But he... He looked at it and he'd been a long time practicing Buddhist and he realized, even oh. though I have all these outside measures of success, I feel crappy inside. I feel worse than I ever have. So he started reflecting and thinking about why he was where he was and he realized we all have basic human needs. It is up to us to meet our own basic human needs. Nobody else can meet them. And when we fail to meet those human needs, we get burned out. I'm burned out. So he looked at, can I be, meet my basic human needs? within the context of Silicon Valley's culture as it is. And he made the decision at the time that, no, I can't. And I don't want to live this way. So he left, which, you know, from the outside, people were just flabbergasted. Like, what? You're you're it. You're you're at the pinnacle. Why would you want to walk away? Like, what is, what do you, can you monetize it? I mean, you have so much money and you die and you live in a really expensive coffin. Okay. Right. Exactly. And now he travels around the country and talks (laughs) about burnout and basic human needs. So we incorporate that a lot because like you talk about the hard chargers, whether they are in the business world or in the entrepreneurial world, which as you and I talked about earlier, has a very high suicide rate also. Oh, I believe it. It's um, never enough. Yeah. The responder world, the military world, the hard chargers tend to think I can put myself last. I can put out to everybody else. I can protect everybody else. I can serve everybody else and I'll just make do. No, we can't do that. It's a human thing. It's a performance thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so knowing <laughs> now that it's expanded from like <laughs> responders and service to like worldwide, you you're with all clear. What are what are next steps that aren't overwhelming to you? Because I mean the doors are open. This is amazing. But then they you are. see then you welcome in like you open the doors to the entire world. It's like floodgates. Well, and I'm excited. So the majority of my role will be with Global Medical Response as oh, their okay. director of health, wellness, and resiliency. Oh, okay. I am really excited about that because um, in addition to the nursing background, I also got certified as a health coach and integrative nutritionist. And, take take you notes, know. Exactly. What do you need? Well, Rhonda's you got know. it all. Do you need a pizza? She can also make pizza. Gluten-free. Paleo. Cooking's not really a strong point. Yeah. You don't have time. <laughs> but you know, the coaching background, the weightlifting background, yeah. all that stuff. I'm really excited about this opportunity to bring it all back together and put education together to help other people live their best lives with, Hey, I know you're stressed. I know you're busy. I want to make this easy for you. I want to explain to you why you have the right to choose whatever you want to put in your body, but why this serves you better. Um, and recognize that, yeah, maybe vegans, what serves you better, maybe paleo is what serves you better. But you have to understand the basics and figure out, pay attention. And basically, that's what it is, is increasing internal awareness. So then it mitigates the whole 50 steps after that. Exactly. Like getting it early on, like we can talk about 
take care of yourself. So then we're not, you know, post-trauma, post-alcoholism, post-whatever's going on, and now we're dealing with it. We can come back to here. And not only is it streamlining your guys' process, but it makes their life more livable for all those years in between. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of, what's the decision I can make in this moment that makes my life better and probably yeah. makes these other 10 decisions obsolete because this didn't send me down that path. This right. sent me on a different path. And the impact of their family and everybody in their immediate reality. Like, it's huge. That ripple effect is massive. Oh, exactly. Yeah. One of the partners and the collaborators that we've worked with that I've been most excited about is the Center for Relationship Education here in Englewood, Colorado. Their founder, Janine McKenzie, was a nurse who was seeing a lot of stress and trauma in families. And she recognized that... When we look at the societal issues, whether it's bullying, using sex for connection, you know, hello, Tinder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Swiped. Right. Anger, alcoholism, drug addiction. She said, you know, there's so many programs out there to address these things and they're not being successful. So she took it a step back and said, I think all these things are failed attempts to cope with stress, trauma and hurt that impacts our relationships. So if we build the relationships and the communication skills mm -hmm. that all of us think we have, None of us were really educated on right. and none of us share in common with everybody else. If we build those skills, then we can take away the need for these, these numbing behaviors, these coping 100%. mechanisms. So, yeah. And I love that. And again, that's something that she started with adolescents, middle school and high school kids. She expanded into single moms, to adults, to military wow. and now to responders. And it's just really good basic skills that. Yeah. Life all, skills. Yeah. And they increase the internal awareness. Why am I about to snap? Where am I failing myself? Yeah. Um, how can I make my life better? How is she getting out there? Is she partnering with like schools or like, what, how is that getting into the world? They have two different streams. One is grant funded. So their school work has been grant funded. They also have corporate education. So a lot of corporations oh, okay. are going to come in and do workshops. But you're an adult in the corporate world. Like I want to hear about this in like kiddo world. Mm -hmm. Like schools are like when you're young. Like right. this is stuff we need at like five, six years old. Oh my gosh, exactly. We created a module with them called Responding to Your Relationships. It was okay. specific to emergency response work. We talk about parasympathetic nervous system backlash when you're tapped after a shift. We talk about sliding worldviews when you're called to the worst days of other people's lives and that's all you see. You start to think that's what the world is like. Yeah. And it's not. It's that, it's that slice of the world. But we talk about all that specific stuff and uh, we've been very grateful to have a lot of grant funding around that. So last May, we got to present it to a group of corrections officers for the Board of Prisons in Colorado. Okay. And at lunchtime, so it's an eight-hour workshop, so four hours in, the CO, who was probably 60 years old, came up to me and he shook his head. He said, do you know how much better my life would have been? Yeah. somebody taught me this early on? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> like how validating uh, yes. and heartbreaking at the yeah. same time. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I mean, there's, like I said, it's so funny because like some of these casts, like we come in in such, you know, maybe it's fitness, maybe it's fatness, maybe it's colorism, but like kind of comes back to getting to know yourself. And uh, I think something that's so critical is how long it takes and how many journeys and hours and lives and commitment it takes to um, create a revolution to facilitate change to be these change agents like it you really have to acknowledge all the people before you that you know could that acknowledged or allowed a space for women to do what you did even though you would have forged a lot exactly. of that theory. like it takes so many people and steps into lives and time and energy to facilitate bits of change and to really get things to the next level and that's I, I believe in um, what's next in our future and, and as how heavy as, as it is right now with politics and finance and everything our young people really are living in a different world. And that's because of the work, like people like yourself that have 
forge this ground, like through, you know, through the weeds with a machete, like chopping shit down, <laughs> trying to like blaze some trail because it takes so much to get there. And, and then that validation piece comes from one comment in one, you know, a presentation that you had and it all makes sense. Um, and that's why I always encourage the, through these interviews, like I can see kind of these bright moments when it's like, and this happened, I'm like, dang, how did you not know this this whole time? Like you're doing all this crazy stuff. I think that most humans are not doing and you're taking on all this work unnecessarily. So you can go work at a bar or I know disrespect to my bartenders because that's a lot of work too. Uh, <laughs> you can take an easy job. You know, you can do something that's simple, have 2.5 kids, do your thing. And there's no disrespect to anyone that chooses that. And you choose this hard road. Like this is all, this is a hard life. It's incredibly rewarding and it's purposeful. And I, I think you are given, um, initiative and, and uh, ambition to do certain things because deep down you can take them on, whether you believe in God or spirit or what have you, like you're, you're capable, um, but it's still a choice. And so I think it's important you acknowledge the trail that you have blazed for the next generation all the time. Like, this is really massive conversation. Well, and right back at you because you have this conversation we in try. so many different domains <laughs> and so many different realms that, yeah. Um, and you're good at pulling it all together and seeing the common threads. And I think so, somewhere, somewhere in my brain, it does stick together. And I actually got to see that on the brain map. And she's like, you're good at this. You're good at this. And you're a thousand miles an hour, but you need to chill the fuck out. I'm like, yes, do you have some for that? Like, give me some tequila's not enough. Um, but like learning that on balance and it's because of my own journey of like, more isn't more. You do need to do self-work. You do need to lean into this. You know, trauma subjective. It could be like a breakup or it could be like a parent dying. It, it, how you interpret that is all within you. So everybody has this shit to deal with. Exactly. And then you deal with it. And Victor Frankl, um, one of the leading existentialist thinkers, uh, he was a psychiatrist in Austria who spent four or five years in concentration camp. So he Oof. didn't come up with this in a cozy office smoking a pipe and thinking about it. Um, he, he, he's the one who talks about the last of man's freedoms as the ability to choose his attitude in any set of circumstances. Yeah. So, I mean, tested, fire Oof. tested. Yeah. But he talks a lot about um, – oh, and I just lost the thread. What were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> he wrote um, – trying to choose oh. in a conservation camps. Comparative suffering. Oh, yes. Yes. So everybody has their own forms of trauma. And he talks a lot about suffering is just like a gas. Obviously, we know the context that it expands to fill all the available space. Okay. And it's not a competition. It's not I should ignore my depression because he's got suicidal ideation. It's not that I should ignore my broken tibia because she has a broken femur. And that's so much worse. No, no, no. Right. We each have our suffering and we're each responsible for dealing with it. Well, it's and all, it's, re it's all yeah, relative. Exactly. And if you're young. I mean, when I turn my ACL in college... I mean, I was at a D1 top 20 team, privileged enough to be in college, blah, 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 white privilege, family, all the labels that look like a thing. When that happened, I was devastated. Like it shook up my world so deeply. And then years later, my brother, you know, went overseas, came home with PTSD, and I would consider that a thousand times worse. Um, but we both kind of dealt with those traumas somewhat similar. And it didn't occur to me until later. It's like, wow, it's two totally different things. Right. And you can't really compare them. However, it was equally devastating to us as individuals. Um, but I can absolutely see how it's like, well, you see someone's trauma and you're like, well, that's way worse than mine. I'm fine. And that's just such a dangerous road to go down because as you just displayed over, you know, the last hour, it's a snowball. You, you, if you don't address in the beginning, now we're going from trauma to, you know, destructive behavior to impacting family to now I'm going to lose my job to now I don't want to be here. Exactly. Um, so that those initial steps and that self-awareness of like, it's okay to not be okay. What do we do? Exactly. And once you recognize it, yes. now let's make it easy to reach out for the help and how do you get out of that pit? Exactly. So, so on that note, where do 
people find, I know you start, can I say this? You start January 2nd in yes. your new role. Yes. Um, what's the best, if organizations or people listening, individuals, what's the best way to connect or reach out or get a hold of you or what, what do you advise? Um, I run our Facebook page. So Responder okay. Strong Digital, on Facebook. It. Yeah. Um, we put out a lot of good content. I curate it. I try to make it very positive. We inform people, we keep them aware, but we don't beat people over the head with suicide statistics or bad stories. We try to really empower. And it's interesting to me. I love watching the likes and the clicks and the shares and seeing things like therapy dogs, mindfulness interventions. Those are the things that people are really gravitating towards. Give us tools. Um, and I remember when we first created the peer support team, I was talking to a coworker, another firefighter, and he finally just shook his head. He said, stop counseling me and just give me the tools to fix this. Okay. That's what people want. Um, so I, our that's, Facebook's good. That's how people show up to CrossFit. They're like, I don't need the history of the back squat. How do I get jacked and tanned by September or whatever? Like that's so that's just where the association my brain. I'm like, okay, we're seeing these similar combos, but yes. Exactly. Um, very similar mindsets and personalities. Yes. Uh, we also have a website, responderstrong.org. Um, that's got a lot of resources. We hired a web developer recently. She's amazing. It looks good. It's super robust. We got a lot of free content on there. Uh, videos are on there. It's amazing. Um, and then info at responderstrong.org also comes to me. Perfect. Do you want to share your personal social media where people can follow you? I know you keep it to your personal world, which is fine. Yeah, I'm... Uh, yeah, my social media is random. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> on Instagram, I'm Remy, R-E-M-Y, Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y. And, is Responder um, Strong on IG? No, I okay. haven't. I didn't really see a good way to translate it to that format. Fair. Um, okay. So that actually I, makes sense, even yeah. from a marketing perspective. Oh, that's but, nice. um Maybe if you just did like facts or just a space, just because I think that's where our young people, your future probably audience are engaging, yeah. but I don't know. I would have to, I'm, this is unsolicited advice. I'm just, no, I always no. think it's relevant just because again, I, ugh, it's tough to translate that. However, you don't want to miss. And that's where I think a lot of our young peeps are existing. So anyways, you're right. Whole no, other you're 100%. And it's funny because for my personal posting, it's almost all Instagram. And yeah. For well, Responder yes. Strong, I want Facebook and the website. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did that too with formation where I'm like, I don't want to have another IG account. I don't want to, I want to keep it because it's kind of a small group. Right. And it's private. However, most people engage that way now. True. So, but again, this is evolving even in the past year. So, you know, anyone that's, we segued, but uh, unsolicited branding <laughs> consultation no, happening. Yeah. <laughs> but check Rhonda out. Um, there are so many angles we could have gone on around lifestyle, wellness, tips, brain health, um, all kind of going around mental health and lifestyle. So maybe we'll do a whole second cast. I on would some love of these that. Things. Um, I would love to chat in like six months after you're off and running with all clear and globalization, EMS, global medical response, global medical response. Okay. Um, how the kind of how it's been since you've taken off and taken over this role, maybe new progress you've done. If maybe Fantastic. there's um, college curriculums or other people that want to facilitate some of these larger messages into like a more organizational platform, um, which it sounds like you guys are already building out. Yep. Um, so we will, we'll just touch base on all things that are happening. I love that. Cool. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Check out Rhonda. Um, cheers. And everybody, please take time to take care of yourself. Love that. Yes. Bye. Thank you for joining Turmeric and Tequila with your host, Kristen Olson. Tune in next time and don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.